we are, have been, will be offering, encouraging more freedom in posture of worship. And there's, there's a few things that have all kind of vectored into that. Um, one of which is just me going to some other places, worshiping in some other churches and at some retreats, and appreciating the freedom that I experienced there and, and realizing, you know, sometimes I do want to stand. Sometimes I want to kneel. Um, and I know that other people have expressed the same thing. Um, the, the question is always the balance between allowing individual freedom of expression and wanting to do things uniformly the same the same way at the same time. We're, we're going we're gonna to try flexing a little bit towards letting the Lord lead each of us individually, letting the Lord speak to our hearts and to our knees and to our backs. And, and uh, if, it becomes, if, it, if it becomes distracting, we'll, we'll reevaluate. But I don't think it's going to. Anyway, tonight we're in Isaiah 46, and we're going to double dip. We're going to hit chapter 47, I think. Unless God does something different. A year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, as we began Isaiah, and as we began our new Wednesday night format, 6.30, trying to keep it to 7.30, an hour-ish service, in the hopes that more people would be able to attend if we, if we started reasonably early and got people home reasonably early. We also said, hey, let's, let's take Isaiah at a chapter a week pace. You know me, most of you. I could go a lot slower. <laughs> um, lots of teachers go much quicker, and I've done that too in the past. Um, but a chapter a week has seemed to fit us, has seemed to be where the Lord has had us. Occasionally we'll slow down. Like a couple of weeks ago, we slowed way down to look at the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of 45 because the specific prophecies concerning Cyrus were just too cool to rush. And by the same token, occasionally we speed up where it seems warranted. And chapter 46 and 47 give us a reason. It's not that just that they're, they're shorter, but together they, they form kind of a couplet. They speak together of Babylon. And that in and of itself is not that unusual. God has spoken a lot about Babylon in the chapters of Isaiah that we've already studied together. Both past Babylon and future Babylon, the empire of Antichrist, which may or may not be on the near horizon. It's not unusual for Isaiah to talk about Babylon. What's unusual is these two chapters are the last time he does these two chapters are the last time that Babylon is explicitly referenced in the book of Isaiah. So it's worth looking at them together because together they form a unified message. Chapter 46, verse 1. You're there. I'll get there. I promise. Chapter 46, verse 1. To talk about Babylon is to talk about idolatry. Right? Most Historians, both biblical historians and secular historians, agree that idol worship was born, began in the ancient city of Babylon. Babylon and before it, Babel. Babylon, idolatry, forever intertwined. And as we begin tonight, the Holy Spirit points at that. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. 
They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Poetic language, what in the world is going on? Bel is a shortened form of Bel Marduk, sometimes uh, brought into other languages as Baal or Baal, one of the leading gods of Babylon. As, as, as the Babylonians begat the Medes and the Persians, begat the Greeks, begat the Romans, the descendant of Baal was Zeus in Greek mythology, Jupiter in the Roman pantheon, Nebo, another prominent deity of Babylon. Nebo was a son of Bel and is, is the equivalent of Hermes to the Greeks, uh, Mercury to the Romans. We see the significance of the names, the significance that the Babylonians attach to the names when we think of the names of some of their kings. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar from Nebu. Belshazzar from Bel. The connotation being those kings were attributing their strength, associating their names with the names of these powerful deities. My strength comes from Bel. My strength comes from Nebo. But of course, the opposite was true as well. When one nation conquered another in the ancient world, the, the same deities that were thought to give strength to their kings while those nations were strong were paraded around and mocked in the streets as weaker than the deities of the nations that had just conquered them. The, 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 the conquered nations' idols would be dragged around on, on ox carts, typically, as a demonstration, as a declaration, our gods are stronger than your gods. So what the Holy Spirit is describing here, what he's envisioning, and, and let's not lose sight of the fact that he's prophesying, what the Holy Spirit is speaking of is the demise of Babylon's gods a century before Nebuchadnezzar built the empire and brought those gods into common parlance. While Isaiah was writing those deities were worshipped in relative obscurity. A century before the deities rise and the nation with them, Isaiah's already prophesying their fall. When your nation falls, Isaiah says, because it will, your deities will go from being great, par uh, great powers to great burdens. They'll be weighing down the very wagons that drag them. And they'll be conspicuously unable to do anything about it. Not only are they not going to be able to protect Babylon from Cyrus, because for the last couple chapters, remember Isaiah has been prophesying about Cyrus, a conqueror who hasn't been born yet. Not only are they going to be unable to stop Cyrus, they're not even going to be able to carry themselves. They won't able, be even able to to spur on or provide strength to the beasts carrying them when the, when the oxen, when the cattle get tired. When the cattle get tired, they won't be able to give them the strength to continue. All of which is in contrast, God continues, to me, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to me, verse 3, O house of Jacob, and to all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. 
even I will carry and will deliver you. Your Babylonian gods, there's going to come a day where they need to be carried. Who am I? God says, by contrast, I am the God who carries. He's speaking on a couple different levels. He's speaking on an individual level, of course. He's saying, I'm the one who carries you from the womb to the grave. In me, you live and move and have your being. But I'm also the one who's carried you. Second level, he's saying, I've carried you as a nation, as a people. Beginning with Abraham, when I birthed you, when I, when I brought Abraham out of his father's house on the Earl of the Chaldees, I carried you across the Red Sea. I carried you through the wilderness. I carried you into the land. I will carry you into exile, but I will carry you through exile, and I'll carry you back. God is reminding them. Remember these chapters, this section of the book, is written primarily as an encouragement to Israel in exile, to Judah and, God says, to, to the remnant of Israel who will be carried off. I'm the reason that you're still here in the first place. I'm the reason that you'll continue to exist after the Babylonians conquer you. And I'm the reason that you'll continue to exist and be brought back from captivity. That's who I am, God says. And who can compare to me? Rhetorical question, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold on over the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves, yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulders, they carry it and set it on its place and it stands from its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. God is pointing out a couple of things here. The Holy Spirit is saying, your gods, your, the Babylonian gods, their idols are not valuable because they're made of silver, gold, and precious jewels. First of all, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just carved out of stone and wood and, and metal. God has made that point already. But even when they're made out of something valuable, you didn't worship the valuable gold or silver or jewels. You weren't bowing down and worshiping the raw materials. You didn't worship it until you worked with it with your hands. You didn't worship it until you made it the way that you wanted it, until you sat it in its place, and then you bowed down before it. But isn't it ironic the Holy Spirit points out that the God that you are bowing down before doesn't move unless you move it. God is reminding them that makes that idol part of creation, subject to the laws of physics. An object at rest stays at rest. You're worshiping part of the creation as opposed to the Creator, who is who He is, who goes where He will, whose value is in of himself, and who does as he pleases. And what is God pleased to do? More than anything else, verse 8, God pleases, is pleased to save. God does as he will. He saves whom he will. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I'm God and there's no other. I'm God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 
This is, this is like Psalm 115.3. Our God in heaven does as he pleases. We see that again and again in scripture. Because again and again in, in creation, in history, God has demonstrated that. Again and again, God reminds us, I do what I want. But again and again, he shows us what he wants to do is save. I delivered Noah. He's, he's, he's invoking here by reference. He doesn't call it out, but he's assuming that his readers are familiar. I saved Noah and his family. I saved Israel, how? Through Joseph and his family. I saved again through Moses. I saved again through David. But he's adding something as well. He's pointing out, not only am I God who saves, am I God who carries through trial and tribulation, but every time I have, I've called it before I've done it. Remember Amos? We, 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 we look at Amos so often. God does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. God is like Babe Ruth. Okay, Babe Ruth is like God. Okay, neither one. It's a bad comparison and forget it. But remember the time that Babe Ruth pointed to the outfield. He said, that's where I'm hitting the ball. God does that. He says, this is where I'm going to hit the ball. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. This is when I'm going to do it. Watch, because I'm about to do it again. That's what he's saying to his people in captivity. You've seen me. You know this is who I am. Will you believe that I'll do it again? Will you believe, will you trust that I'm going to carry you again? Transgressors here. Some commentators misinterpret that, I believe, and say that God is referring to the Babylonians. No, 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 no. Why is Judah in captivity? Why are they carried off? Why does God not only allow it, but prescribe it? Because they've bought into the idol worship of the surrounding nations, including the Babylonians. They've worshipped the Baals, the Ashtoreths. And God is saying, let it go. Drop it. Come back. Remember, I'm God who saves. Here, more surrounded by idol worship than you've ever been, is where you most need to cling to me. Because it's from that place I'm going to deliver you, if you'll let me. If you're willing to trust me. Verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. This is how I'm going to do it. Indeed, I've spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I will also do it. You can find rabbis, Messianic rabbis, who read verse 11 as Messianic, speaking of Messiah and a greater deliverance. I've got a problem with that because I can't think of another place in Scripture that Jesus is personified by a bird of prey. I might be wrong. I can't think of one. Birds in Scripture, in fact, are usually bad. So I think the straightforward interpretation is safer. That verse 11 speaks of Cyrus coming from the east, devouring all the nations in his path before he seizes upon Babylon and releases captive Israel. I'm doing it again, God is saying. I'm telling you what I'm going to do before I do it. The question is whether or not you're willing to believe it. 
Are you willing to trust me to carry you back home? Side note, bird from the east might trouble a few of you because Cyrus, wait, I thought Cyrus came from the north. We looked at this in Isaiah 41. You might not have been with us. Isaiah 41 verse 25 speaks of Cyrus, not by name, but, but clearly by identity. From the north he shall come, and then later in the same verse, from the rising of the sun he shall come. Okay, how can one person do both? Remember who Cyrus is. Cyrus's mother was the daughter of the king of Media from the north. His father was the king of Ashnan, part of the ancient empire of Persia. Thus, Cyrus was uniquely positioned to unite the Medes and the Persians, the empire of the north, the powers of the east. Anyway, back to our text, verse 11. I've spoken it, I'll bring it to pass. I've purposed it, I'll do it. So how will you respond? God puts the question to them. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. I'm coming to you. I'll pick you up, God says. My salvation shall not linger, and I'll place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Again, stubborn-hearted? Is that the Babylonians? I guess it could be. More likely the Jews chasing after Babylonian idols. After all, that's the reason they're in captivity. And that's the choice put before them. Remember the early chapters of Daniel. That's exactly the choice that Daniel, as part of the captivity, faces. Will he bow down before foreign idols? But, you know, if you, if you wanted to, by application, you could extend this to anyone rebelling against God. Because everyone from every people group in every time, we've all faced the same choice, haven't we? Go our own way, worship gods of our own making, of our own choosing, or trust the God who delivers, God who declares the end from the beginning, God who proves his heart is to save those who trust in him again and again and proves that he is who he says he is every time that he does it. God throughout history carries saves, delivers those who trust in him, judges those who reject him, those who insist on choosing their own adventure. Chapter 47, we'll keep going. As king goes, so goes country, right? Groups take on the qualities of their leaders. As king goes, so goes country. As idols go, so go idolaters. Verse chapter 46, God says, Watch what I'm going to do with the idols of Babylon, chapter 47, and watch what happens to the idol worshipers. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Daughter, when daughter is singular, it refers to the population of a city or a country or a people group. Daughter singular is a populace. Daughters refers to women. Here, your people, Babylon, your populace, your citizens will be brought low. Your elite and pampered, your tender and delicate, soft-handed people who have never been conquered and who haven't had to work very hard will be brought low. 
You're going to rule the world for 70 years, enjoy it while it lasts, because verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden. Sorry, verse 2 of 47, take the millstone and grind meal, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. They've gone from being soft-handed, tender, delicate, elite, to doing the menial work of slaves. They've been humiliated. Undress yourselves and wade through the rivers. Nakedness in Scripture consistently associated with shame. We talked about that in Romans 5. And that's God's point, verse 3. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. God is, is, is making the cause and effect clear. He doesn't want us to have to guess. He said one plus one, but he's going on to say, yeah, equals two. He's connecting the dots. Your humiliation is not an accident. It's the result of rebellion against the true and living God. God who moves in defense. God who acts on behalf of his people. Verse four, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of the Kingdoms. You'll no longer be a prissy queen. But why? How does this make sense? Didn't God spend like the first half of the book of Isaiah saying, I'm going to use Babylon, I'm going to choose Babylon to bring about my will, to bring about the, the humiliation of Judah. Didn't God say, I'm going to use Babylon to chastise Judah? I thought Babylon was God's chosen instrument, doing what he wanted. How is it that God now punishes them? God says, good question, but there's an answer. Yes, I was angry with my people, verse 6. I've profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand, speaking to the Babylonians. Here's the thing, though. You showed them no mercy. On the, on the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. Yes, I called you, I chose you, I sent you to judge my people. But you colored outside the lines. You exceeded your mandate. There was mission creep. You did too much of, of what I asked. Zechariah 1 verse 5, Zechariah says, they helped forward the affliction. They exceeded the parameters. They were brutal where God didn't call for brutality. The elderly? No, no, no. I didn't ask you to abuse the elderly, God says. You were cruel to the poor. No, no, no. I love the poor. And verse 7, not only did you do the wrong thing, because too much of the right thing is the wrong thing. Verse 7, not only did you do the wrong thing, but you did it for the wrong reasons. You said, I shall be a lady forever, a queen forever, a ruler forever, so that you did not take these things to heart nor remember the latter end of them. You forgot what my goal was, God says. You forgot it was about me. You made it about you. You decided that you were invincible that you were ruler of the planet, that you could do what you wanted. You forgot who raised you up to that place, who put you in that place. 
And you forgot why I did it. I didn't do it so that you could build your kingdom. I did it so you could build my kingdom. I did it not so you could pursue your own glory. I did it for my glory. If that sounds familiar, it's the same indictment that God leveled against the Assyrians. It's also the same warning that Jesus levies against us. Jesus warns us about kingdom building, doesn't he? It's not about you. It's not about your plans. It's not about your future. It's not about your name. It's not about your brand. It's about Jesus. A friend of my pastors, the church in Northern California, their church motto, where, where ours is wind, build, and send, theirs is simply Jesus famous. I like that. I like that. Because that's what it's about at the end of the day. Let the name Calvary Chapel perish. Let the name of Jesus endure forever. Babylon is guilty of kingdom building, God just said. And remember, he's speaking through Isaiah, he's speaking prophetically. He's voicing it in the prophetic past tense as if it's already happened because God is outside of time. He sees it as if it's already happened. He's declaring ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do, Babylon. And this is what my response is going to be. Verse 8, Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there's no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor, nor shall I know the loss of children. That last, the last two lines, those are things that God is attributing to Babylon, assigning to Babylon. This is what you think, you daughters. You think nothing bad can ever happen to you. Because the worst thing to happen to a woman, continuing with the, with the metaphor, would be to lose her husband, in this society, would be to lose her husband because that would represent the loss of income and standing and status and property. And to lose children is to lose one's future. You think that the worst can't happen. Guess what? Verse 9. These two things shall come to you. In a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. People will be slaughtered, God says. Soldiers will be slaughtered, making you a widow. Civilians will be massacred, eliminating your future because, look back at verse 8, Babylon said of itself, I am, and there's none beside me. I am what's important. I am the religion that I've invented for myself. I stand alone. I stand above. I stand beside. Except what does God say of himself? I am. You say I am? No, no, no. I said I am first. I am who I am, and you shall have no other gods beside me. Verse 9, God is saying, okay, if it's your I am versus my I am, my I am wins. And verse 10, for you've trusted in your wickedness. You've said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You've said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. 
and you shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You won't be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. God is reminding them that he is the God of yesterday, today, and forever, that he's the God who knows the end from the beginning. He's God who speaks history before it happens. He's reminding them their gods can't do that. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to destroy you, God says. And it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen without warning because your gods aren't going to warn you. Unless, unless wait, maybe, maybe, maybe your gods will save you. Verse 12, stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. Except we read in Daniel 5, no. The night that Cyrus invades, the astrologers, the soothsayers are gathered together. They got nothing. And that doesn't surprise us. Proverbs 21.20, there's no wisdom, there's no understanding, there's no counsel that can stand against the Lord. It's fulfilled in Daniel 5, just the way it's prophesied here. Verse 13, you're wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Except, no, they can't. Behold, they shall be as stubble with you. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves or you from the power of the fire. It shall not be a cold to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one will save you. The value of your idols at the end of the day, God says, will be nothing more and nothing less than the warmth that you can derive from burning them. Their value shall be whatever fuel they are to the fire. Fulfilled in Daniel 5, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Worth noting as we wrap up, fulfilled in Revelation 17 and 18 as well. Sometimes when Scripture talks about Babylon, we said it's talking about Babylon past. Sometimes it's talking about Babylon future. There's times that it's a false dichotomy and it's talking about both at the same time. Here, I think the, the, the weight of what Isaiah is saying is clearly towards, Isaiah, towards Babylon past. But is there something about Babylon future that, that we can find, that we can derive, perhaps? Because Babylon past and future, there's a spirit in common isn't there? It's not for nothing that they're named the same thing. Names are significant in Scripture, and this is no exception. Now, Babylon future is that literal Babylon, the city of Babylon that we point at at a map that we can go and visit. Maybe, but not for sure. There are those who think so, and there are good reasons to believe so. But then we have verses like 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter's wrapping up his letter and he's saying, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you along with my son Mark. We know that Peter is executed in Rome, so more than possible, he's using Babylon at the end of his letter as, as, as a code name, if you will, for Rome. And is it possible that this future world empire that Daniel's vision in Daniel 2 makes clear is a revived Roman empire, is it possible that that's the, the, the capital of that is Rome and that where we read Babylon future 
we should understand that to be pointing to Rome. That's possible as well. Babylon could be literal Babylon. Babylon could refer to Rome. Or Babylon could refer to whatever world power at any point in history, really, is characterized by the things that characterize Babylon. Self-glorification, kingdom-building, God-renouncing, idol-embracing. A little bit of a rabbit trail, but what isn't a rabbit trail? What is the sin of Antichrist? Why does what we know happens in Revelation 17 and 18, why does what we know happens to future Babylon happen? What's the sin of Antichrist? Look again at verse 10. You've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. Remember, Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. Antichrist is counterfeit Christ. Antichrist says, I'm just like God. I am that I am. There's no one like me. With what result? Evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. Trouble shall fall upon you. You won't be able to put it off. Desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Antichrist, and we don't fully understand how or why, because Satan's read the Bible, but yet Antichrist is still surprised at the return of Jesus. Up until the last minute, he really believes that if he can exterminate the Jewish people, he can hold off the return of their Messiah. When Jesus returns, what's the result? What happens specifically to Babylon? Isaiah 13 tells us that as the kingdom is being restored, as the curse is being reversed throughout the planet, as earth is, is becoming more beautiful than it's ever been at any time since Eden, Babylon is a conspicuous exception. Babylon remains a wasteland, a place of fire and brimstone, a dwelling place for demons which kind of fits. The occult originally, uh, originated in Babylon. It makes sense that in the kingdom, the, the, the kingdom of the occult is relegated to Babylon. All of which is, 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 is future tense. All of which we won't be around for. We'll be watching from the mezzanine. But what's our job in the meantime? Same as Isaiah's job. Our job is the same as what we read in Revelation 18.4 when the voice from heaven says, flee Babylon lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. What is Isaiah saying to the remnant of Israel? Flee Babylon in your hearts. God will carry you from Babylon in time, but now... While you're dwelling in Babylon, surrounded by Babylon, flee Babylon. And you and I need to do that as well. We can't very well tell people to flee the world system of Babylon, to flee the economic system, to flee the coming one world religion, to flee the, the coming world empire. We can't tell people to worry about that stuff. 
if we ourselves aren't fleeing the idolatry that surrounds us, if you and I are dwelling not in the physical place of Babylon, but in the philosophical choices of Babylon. Look once more at verse 10. Probably the most important verse that we looked at tonight. You've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you've said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. Those things always go together in Scripture and in history. Those two things, secret keeping and kingdom building. No one sees me. No one knows me. No one understands me. What I am when I'm alone by myself is no one's business but mine. I am, at least privately. And in my private places, there's no one beside me. There's no one to tell me who I should and shouldn't be, what I can and cannot do. Spoke to a pastor today, one of the Poyman guys, one of the retired Calvary guys who a lot of their ministry is serving as interim pastors for churches that need interim pastors. Why do churches need interim pastors? Two main reasons. Pastors die, they go home to the Lord, and pastors fall. He was reaching out about a, a church where a pastor had fallen. Another one. And the reasons that he fell and the, re the events leading up to it are painfully familiar. His ministry became about him. It was his church. It was his lifestyle. And parallel to that, his devotional life suffered. The walls went up between the public sphere and the private sphere, between his ministry self and his personal self. God doesn't recognize those divisions. God doesn't ordain that bifurcation. God is God of all, right? We're the ones who separate our lives into compartments. And when we do, it's always for the same reason. It's always for the reason of putting a sphere, a zone off limits, establishing different rules, outside accountability, outside visibility of the body of Christ. And we imagine outside the influence or judgment of God, and boy, are we wrong. It doesn't work that way. He's God of all, or he's not God at all, right? When we set up a zone of our life where the rules don't apply, where we are our own gods, we become antichrist, counterfeit Christ, making rules, trying to carry ourselves through trials, using sin as coping mechanism, deciding we're not going to wait for God or rely on God. We're going to trust in God of our own manufacturing, our own habits, our own methods. And it's not just pastors. And it's not just pastors that God brings low. God brought another pastor low. He, he might get back to ministry. He might restore a relationship with his family. So far, he hasn't. But it's never going to be the same. And God's warning to us, you can let me carry you or you can let me chastise you. You can fall upon the rock or be crushed beneath the stone. God hates idolatry, public idolatry, private idolatry. If we won't ask him to deal with it, he will still deal with it. Verse 9, what does he say? 
in a moment and a day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in your fullness because of the things that you imagined could help you, could save you. Go back to the very beginning. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden. They have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I've made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. God carries. God carries. As we wrap up, you've all heard the story, I'm sure. And no one is really sure who wrote it. It's, it's one of those things that gets passed around about the person who dreams of being with the Lord. And the Lord is showing him his life. He's looking down on his life from God's perspective. And, 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 and he's looking at it as, as footsteps along the shore. And there are times corresponding to the times of his life, times of trial, times of tribulation, times of great loss or difficulty, where there was only one set of footsteps, where before there were two. All through his life, Jesus, I saw you walking with me. But when I really needed you during those really heavy times, those difficult times, there's only one set of footsteps. Jesus, where did you go? Why did you abandon me? You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. What happened? And we know the story. Jesus says, oh, those were the times that I carried you. Here's the question, though. And I didn't come up with this. Somebody pointed it out to me. Why are there ever two steps of, sets of footsteps? Why is there ever more than one? Why aren't we always letting Jesus carry us? Why do we ever jump out of his arms? Why do we ever go our own way? God who saves is God who keeps saving. God who lifts us up out of the pit is God who carries us. Jesus, we, we sang before, we cast down our idols. And part of casting down our idols is letting you lift us, letting you hold us, letting you carry us. We turn to so many things, foolish things, to cope with a painful world, to deal with loss and sorrow, to try to take control of things that are beyond our control. All we need to cling to, all we need to trust in is you. And so often we pray things like that and we say, Jesus, help us. But even in saying help us is, is to imply that we can do some of it ourselves. Jesus, I'll do most of it, but what I can't do, will you do for me? Jesus, I can do none of it. I'm worthy of none of it. Will you do all of it? Will you carry me? Will you live your life through me? Will you glorify yourself? Will you be lifted high as you have your way?